Good morning. Thank you for being here this morning as always. We're in the study of the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 12. You remember what happened last week? Jesus in chapter 11 is responding to the question of John the Baptist, are you the one? And again, for those of you who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, Bill Treby took the stand. I was out of town doing a wedding in Florida, but I thought Bill's class was excellently done. Anybody agree with that? Okay, great. Wonderful. So hopefully if you did not hear it, get the podcast or the CD or whatever it is that you know, we find ourselves going to to get the recordings of these, these classes. This morning, we continue in chapter 12. And you remember in previous chapter, Jesus had talked about needing laborers for the field. And he tells the disciples, he says, I'm sending you out into this world as sheep among wolves. And we discussed that. And so this morning... We're going to begin to look at chapter 12 where Matthew records six episodes that describe the kind of opposition that Jesus will encounter as he moves the kingdom of God forward in the ministry of the gospel. And as we look at these episodes of opposition to the gospel... Let's remember this, that the Word of God is certainly written for those original people. But it was also written for us. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us, these things are written for our instruction. So we can learn from them, so we can grow, so we don't make the same errors, so we can be aware of all the strategies of Satan. And so as we see the opposition to Jesus, even though there are no Pharisees as far as the legal station or the legal leadership position of a Pharisee, there are still Pharisees among us. And probably I could say, I know in me, there is a Pharisee in me. And I think probably all of us have Pharisaical ways about us. And I think I can say that fairly confidently because really, if you would, the flesh is a Pharisee. The flesh and the natural man is a Pharisee. Always looking to make of God's good gift of grace something other than that. God's good, great work of grace to free man into the presence and the joy and the fellowship of God. To make it a work that binds man actually away from and disallows that fellowship of God. So we'll see some of that this morning as we bear down perhaps on these verses 1 through 8 in a more particular way. Father, as we share this morning. Father, would you not only instruct us as to the events historically speaking. But, Father, would you touch our hearts in a deeper way, in a more revealing way. Father, that, as David says, see if there's, search me and see if there's any hurtful or wicked way in me. Father, because we don't want to be 
like the Pharisees, who when we hear the word, we look at others, we accuse others, we don't see anything in ourselves. But Father, mostly, as we hear your word, Father, cause our attention to be what Paul says, examine yourselves. First, Father, let us examine ourselves by your Spirit. And as you examine us, as you minister, as you correct, as you lead, as you apply your word mercifully to us, Father, then, in a greater way, being led by your Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, we can be used more effectively as ministers of the gospel. So, Father, we ask you to work that work in us this morning in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first episode, and we're going to go through all six, not this morning, but over the next couple of Sundays, we'll go through all six. The first episode occurs in verses 1 to 8. So let me read verses 1 to 6 of this section, and we'll pick up 7 and 8 toward the end. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now remember what the Sabbath was to Israel. It was one of the most central and significant issues of religious life that Israel had as a nation. And it, among other things, but almost it and the circumcision um, and, uh, kept Israel apart and made it a distinct nation before all the other nations of the world. So Sabbath is an extremely significant and central doctrine of Judaism. And so it's the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God, remember the temple, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is taking this occasion where the Pharisees attack what the disciples are doing on a Sabbath. And Jesus uses this occasion to begin to deal with the Pharisees' misuse and misapplication of the Sabbath. Remember in Exodus 20 verses 8 to 10, what do we read? Because remember, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. And if they break the Sabbath, how many of the commandments are they breaking? All of them. You remember what James says. If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. Why can that be? Because you see, it is not ten separate, isolated, individual commandments. The commandments are a, a comprehensive revelation of God's nature and character. So the first commandment says what? You shall have No other gods before me. In other words, anything and everything that points to or is significant as much as and even more than God is an idol. Idolatry is the most subversive issue in the church today. All sin is idolatry. 
And so the commandments of 2 through 10 merely give us descriptions of how number 1 is being broken. And so any of the 10 or especially the nine that follow the first that are broken, we've broken all of the commandments. And so by saying that these disciples have broken the Sabbath, the Pharisees are accusing the disciples to be lawbreakers, to be guilty of perhaps being stoned and rejected and so on. And so in verse, uh, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10, we read this, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So on the last day of each week, on the last day of each week, Israel was to remember Yahweh as their sovereign God and the Lord of creation. And how were they to remember him? How specifically was Israel to remember once a week that God was their provider and protector and leader, sustainer, etc.? How were they able to do this, to remember him? Here's the rest of the verse. On that day, the Sabbath, the, the, uh, the seventh day, on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For why? What is the reason for this? Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So this is the command. No work on the Sabbath. Why? Because the significance of the Sabbath was to draw the people's attention away from their daily routines, which weren't bad routines. They were doing the fields and cleaning the houses and doing everything that is normally necessary to maintain and continue normal life. But the Lord said, I want you to take one day a week and come away from the, all of these kinds of duties that keep you occupied during the week, and I want you to come to me, and I want you to set everything aside and make me the focus on this one day a week. I am the focus. So God's purpose in this is in every command was to maintain and mature Israel as his people as they thought, sought to be his image bearers by faith and keeping the commandments. So this commandment, as with all the commandments, was not given by God as a burden to the people, as a set of regulations that they had to keep in order to become something or in order to ingratiate themselves or in order to become his people. But God gave the commandments for the good of the people, for their blessing, for their joy. And I'll repeat some of this later, as I am wont to do. So this means that the Ten Commandments were given to maintain and foster Israel's filial relationship with God. What do I mean by filial? His family relationship with God. Now, when we read this or when we hear this, we need to remember that we are God's people. And in the same way that God gave his commandments to Israel for the purpose of maturing and developing that family relationship with him, 
we have that same goal. God has that same goal for us in the Ten Commandments. And so as we look at this, we have to remember, what is our relationship to the law, to these commands? Is the law to be a burden that we must keep in order to become somebody? Is the law to be put away because now we're free in Christ? Or is the law the ever-remaining revelation of the very person and nature and purpose of God in creating us as his people to be maintained in his fellowship for our joy and blessing that blesses him with great joy? So first, let's remember this, that when Israel called when God called Israel to Mount Sinai, remember in chapter 19 and 20, to give the law. When he did that, he had already called them his son in chapter 4, 22. Remember what he told Moses. He says, go tell Pharaoh, release my son. And so God had already determined beforehand the foreknowledge, the foredecree, the predestination of God had already before the foundation of the world declared that this nation would be his nation, not only a nation, but his peculiar people, his very son, if you would. And obviously that word son has to do with relationship. And so Israel was God's son while in bondage for 430 years. Israel was God's son when the angel of death was passing through the land and destroying all the firstborn of Egypt and spared all the firstborn sons of Israel because of the blood on the door. Israel was God's son when they came to the Red Sea and he parted the Red Sea. Israel was God's son when he brought them to the uh, mountains of Sinai and on Mount Horeb gave the great commandments. And so the commandments were not given in order to make Israel God's son, but in order to be able to establish between God and Israel his means of allowing Israel to enjoy their sonship that God had called them into before the foundation of the world. And we need to see the Ten Commandments in the very same way for us. So this was a celebration day. As they refrained from their work one day a week and they came in before the presence of God to enjoy fellowship with him. This is the purpose of the Sabbath. This was the purpose of all the Ten Commandments. In this, the Lord sought to free them, not to bind them, but to free them from the idolatry of believing that who they were and what they did was the central issue in making them God's people or even in maintaining them as God's people. And we have the same issues today. We have the same issues today. Too often, the church today has been given the glorious grace of a God, the privilege of coming into God's presence as a corporate body gathered together on the first day of the week. That's God's grace for us. That is a major, major gift of mercy and kindness of God. So as his corporate people gathered together once a week, God does do a very significant and unique work 
among all of us as we are gathered that he typically does not do in us individually. It doesn't mean that God cannot, but he chooses to do a significant and specific work among us. And we may not even be aware of it, and probably most of us are usually not aware of it. Well, what's the difference? What's the difference? I don't know the difference. There are spiritual activities of the Holy Spirit and things that are happening in us that we may never know about, maybe even in heaven, that the Lord may not reveal. But God is doing something. He's preparing. He's building. He's maturing. And mostly, what is he doing mostly? He is causing us to sit next to one another. No, think about it. He's causing us to be connected relationally to one another as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sit next to one another, if you would, and are relationally connected to one another. That is one of the most significant ways that God is revealing himself and is maturing us and causing us to walk as his image-bearing people. The simple fact that we are collected together next to one another in a building once a week all practicing the same, all participating in the same worship, receiving the same word, ministering to one another, asking one another how you're doing, talking to one another, praying for one another. And as that happens, the collective work, the the work of God's love within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are three persons experiencing this love, this divine love, is now happening among us. And you don't have that alone watching it on TV if you can be here. We're missing one of the most powerful ministry opportunities the Holy Spirit creates for us. And this isn't an obligation. It's our joy to be here. It's God's joy to call us. But so often, God gives us this as I said, to protect us from idolatry. What idolatry? I I can't come. I'm just too busy. I I stayed up late last night and I'm tired. And all of these other issues, we're not talking about really valid issues. There are valid issues for occasionally missing the gathering of the people of God. I understand that. I really do know that. But for the most part, too many in the church, in this church, or regularly missing what God is calling us into and not only disappointing God, oh yes, grieving the Holy Spirit, but also allowing ourselves to be weakened because of the lack of the kind of ministry that will occur among us. So as we go out into the world, as we lead our families, as we do whatever it is we do outside of this building, the enemy has more opportunity to be successful in us than he would otherwise. And we're not even aware of how it works. God has called us together for our protection, our provision. And this meeting here in this room and the next meeting at 10 o'clock should be the priority of our week. In fact, it should be this way. That is the most significant activity of my week as a corporate body, as a believer. And I will regulate every other activity around that and sub, sub, what, what, sublimate, what, what I put underneath. Uh, what? Subject. Subject everything else 
to this meeting rather than I will see if I can go to church today. It's a very significant issue. And so, Israel is God's son. We are sons and daughters of God. And the same purpose that God had in the Ten Commandments and in the Sabbath for Israel, it's the same for us, except now differently worked out. You see, in this way of not working, in this way of coming aside unto the Lord, they were fulfilling or living out or expressing what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. What in the world does he say in Romans 12? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in view of all that I've told you in the first 11 chapters, I beseech you what? That you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable unto him. That you may be able to demonstrate what his will is, that good and holy will of God in your life. This is what God is after. I believe when Paul penned those words in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he may have had in mind the Sabbath, that great sacrifice. Come aside to me and trust me that if you don't get this thing done or don't get to that meeting or didn't get this accomplished, that I am greater than that and I will deal with it in a way that will cause you to know that in fact I am the Lord of glory and not your own work, and not your own activities. But you see, the Pharisees, in their misplaced zeal to obey the law, the Pharisees had gone beyond the law, requiring what the law did not require. How? By adding their own regulations to the law, which the law did not require. So there is what is called the Mishnah, and it is over 600 minute regulations as to what you can and cannot do lawfully. And so on the Sabbath... They said, we have to begin to describe this and give context to this. So if you can't work on the uh, on Lord's Day, you know, rather on the Sabbath, what does that mean? Well, it means certainly this, that if you take so many steps, okay, you're within bounds. But if you take one more step past that, you're breaking the law. But then they were able to say, well, well but if we attach a rope to this and that and walk this way and go beyond that, then we're not. And they began to invalidate the law. They began to make it something that was hurtful to the people and to bring judgment upon the people of God. They used the grace of God as an excuse to not glorify God. May I make a personal comment here? Is it all right? One of the main concerns I have for this church, and I have seen this, I don't know how regularly, but too often. You get a young man and a young lady in the church who are ministering, ministering, and available to God, and who are participating in the things of God. Then they begin to look at one another and to say, hey, is God drawing us together as husband and wife? And what we begin to see now is that as they come together, they are withdrawing from the activities and from the ministry that God has given them in the church. And then they get married, and we see less of them. And then they have a child or two or three, 
And all of a sudden, but we can't do this because of this child. We can't do this because of this one. And the very grace of God in giving them to one another in marriage and giving them children to bless them, they are now using an excuse to not serve the purposes of God as God has given them. I'm going to mention Bill Treby. He's here, and I hope you don't mind. Bill, we were raised how? In the church, and the whole family came to church how often? All the time. And the children came with us. And the children learned with us to be in the classes and to be in the church and to be part of the activity and the ministry. And today, what kind of significance are we preaching to our children and to others in the church concerning the purpose and the glory of God and the uniqueness of this God as we withdraw from that and say, well, I can't because of this, because of that. You know, I want to approbate people like Todd back there, Big Tucker. I don't know where his other two little girls are, but he brings all three girls in here on Sunday morning. Nick Missios does that when he's in town, and others do it. They bring their children in here. And I tell them, they're not going to disturb me. I'll out-yell them all. But if you have to take them out, go outside, deal with it, and come back in or whatever. But don't neglect the coming together of the people of God and use your children and your business and your other affairs as an excuse not to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he gives it to us. Amen? It is a... Everybody turn around. Look, look who's coming in. I just talked about you. Look, look. There they are. That's two of them. That's two more. And so I want to say this. Thank God for you who come in with your kids. Amen? Amen. Yes, I want to say that. I want to say it. Those are just personal comments. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit is in them. Hopefully. Jesus and his disciples plucked and ate the grain in the fields. The Pharisees judged them for working on the Sabbath by using man, by using the man-created definition of work that redefined the biblical definition of work. They redefined the word work and the understanding of the word work and the purpose. But what does Jesus do? He goes to the scriptures. He goes to the scriptures. Now, one of the things that we've had to, as elders, and I have to struggle with this in my own life, and one of the elders who is in the room will tell you, I know he struggles with this, and I do, and I don't know whether anyone else is, is to go beyond the scriptures, to be, if you would, more biblical than the Bible is. (laughs) I don't know how we do that. And it's a struggle because we want the people of God. We want for ourselves to be a people who glorify God in all that we do. And in our zeal for that, sometimes we are putting obstacles or demands in the way of people and upon them that they cannot glorify God that way. But we're thinking that if they can do this and that and the other and say that and do that and don't do the other, therefore God is more glorified. And we begin to make of the gracious work of God a burden for others. Am I the only one who's ever done that? I think so, and apparently so. Well, you know, this is what you get for having me as a teacher, you know, whatever. Jesus uses the Old Testament scriptures. He said, since King David was not judged for eating the bread of the presence, 
Remember from 1 Samuel 21. In, when he went into the temple, which belonged only to the priest. Why? Why shouldn't Jesus be judged? Because he says a statement here that is astounding. He says, something greater than the temple is here. Uh-oh. You see, remember, the temple was the quintessential focus, fulcrum, center of all of Israel's relational worship and obedience and life, etc., of God. The temple, the temple was the place of God's active and visible presence and around the temple and as a result of the temple and in relation to the temple, all of the religious life of Israel in relation to Yahweh their God was associated in and through their activity in the temple. And Jesus stands there and he says, something greater than the temple is here. Now you think, what do you believe these men thought? These are, we don't, we don't oh, okay, we, we got that. But these were earth-shattering, absolutely crazy comments by Jesus. Crazy comments. But why could he say them? Why could he say them and not be accused of pride? Because it's true. And he was doing the Father's work. Anybody else would say that, it was pride. And it would be. But Jesus said it because it's true. In fact, not to say it would have been pride. Not to say it. So in verses 7 and 8, Jesus explains God's original purpose in the commandment, the fourth commandment. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, that's from Hosea 6.6, 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So he tells them, he said, they've misunderstood the prophecy of Hosea 6.6, 6, which said that God's goal in the law, God's goal in the law itself not only in the commandment, but in the whole law, was not sacrifice in and of itself. God did not take, oh, wow, they killed 4,826,000 lambs last year. Man, we're getting this thing done. This was not God's goal. But it was man's blessing. Man's blessing. His means of mercy for man through the sacrifices. And I know how it is. You've had a long week. You work very long Saturday. You're tired or you stayed up all night watching baseball or something like that. And you're just tired Sunday morning. Or uh, someone has come into town and you just kind of like, well, I need to entertain my friend. Well, whatever the excuse is. I, I just can't do it. It's too difficult. The problem is we don't recognize God's goal of giving us mercy upon mercy, pouring into our lives the grace that we need so we can become more experienced as God's blessed people. Guarantee that if everyone who came to church on Sunday were given $1,000 in cash, 
there may be a whole lot of tired or whatever people, a lot of people set aside all this. I'll do the grass later on. I got to get the cash. We're going to come in. They're coming in. But you see, if that's the case, and it would be, what a revelation of idolatry. What a revelation of idolatry. What a revelation. Or, more germane, there may be a sickness in my body or my family, or I may have a financial need. Wow, I need to make sure I get to church tomorrow because if I don't, God may not answer my prayer. We have to be careful of idolatry in these issues. I need to get to church tomorrow with the corporate body of Christ is assembled because God is pleased and will minister. And I will experience him as he experiences me. Yes. yes. That's why. That should be the reason. But you see, the Pharisees' law made the goal of mercy unattainable because of what they had done to the law. You see, in the Sabbath, God called man from his daily toil to enjoy his provision and presence specifically and uniquely on this one day. In the Sabbath, and as well as the law itself, the rest of it, God called man from his, the, I just said that, but the Pharisees had made it a, from a law of freedom to a burden of obligation. But ultimately, see, what was ultimately in God's mind as he gave the Sabbath and as he gave every single law? What was ultimately God's goal? It was to show that this entire law, this revelation of Yahweh, who I am and how I am and all about me, it was to show that one man would come one day and be the fulfillment and the revelation of what God, who God is and what he meant by giving of the law. So what does Colossians 2.17 says? That all but Christ is what? The fulfillment, the substance, the completion of all of the law. That in this one man, every law is completely and forever fulfilled. May I repeat that? In this one man, how many laws? Every law is completely and forever fulfilled. Absolutely. Only he could do it. And he did do it. So in this temporary law, this Sabbath day keeping law, God was anticipating the day when Jesus would fulfill the Sabbath day. Listen to Hebrews 1.3. As he made purification for our sins, he sat down, he rested at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the Sabbath rest. This is the resting from the toils and the burdens of life. As God gave it to Israel through the seventh day observance, this is the rest that Jesus obtains for us, overcoming all the burdens and the toils of life and of sin and of flesh and idolatry and all of that and the activities of Satan overcoming it all. So now he has sat down. He has achieved the perfect rest of God in a man and for man. In this one man, God's absolute, perfect, eternal rest is accomplished and manifested and displayed and is poured out in this one man. You see, the Sabbath spoke of the day when God's people would enter their rest in Jesus. The Sabbath day, every week, Sabbath, every week, Sabbath, every week, Sabbath. 
And then every week, rest, rest, because God rested. I'm resting because God rests and I'm resting. And I'm enjoying the presence of God as I stop my work and observe this day. And then we hear a man say, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you this rest. What do you mean you'll give us the rest? How will you give us the rest that God promises through the law? How can you do it? What a startling comment. You see, we read this as believers and we don't connect it to the Old Testament. This is unbelievable that he would have said that. How can you? How can you give us rest? We can only get rest as we abide by the law faithfully and go through the Levitical legislation of sacrifices mediated by the priest to come into God's presence and enjoy his presence and only once a week and once a year the great day of atonement our sins are put away for another year so we can survive and continue as God's people. How can you do this? And Jesus says, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And that means across the board in every area. Because anytime we are laboring and are heavy laden in that context, we need to see, is God in this? That doesn't mean because you sweated yesterday doing the grass, that that's not God. But I think you understand, there is a labor of soul and an unrest and a burden to our souls in some of the activities of life. And we have to stop for a moment and think, wait a minute, is this God? Is this God? Or am I too much involved in this myself and not enough trusting? So Hebrews 4.10, remember Jesus said, I'll give you rest. 4.10 says this, whoever has entered God's rest. How many of us in this room have entered God's rest in Christ? Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. As a result, Jesus has become what God intended in the Sabbath. He's fulfilled it. He swallowed it up. Because the Sabbath always, as every law, always had to do with a man and his relationship with God and God displaying himself perfectly through a man. This is the intention of all the law all the time. You see, in Jesus, now we are at soul rest from the toils and work of life. Amen? Now, you may not experience it and you may not feel it, but that doesn't mean we are or not. And if you're not experiencing it and feeling it, you need to go to God and ask him what areas are there in my life which are taking away from or weakening or diverting me from a fuller expression and experience of my rest in Christ. We need to have a battle against the idolatry which would take us out of rest and put us under the burden of regulations and requirements and judgmentalism, legalism, or throwing off all restraints and living like we want license. However, you see, there are still some today, there are still people today, there are denominations today, who will insist that keeping the Sabbath day is still obligatory 
we have to keep the Sabbath, and we have to go to church on Saturday. And if we don't keep the Sabbath by going to church on Saturday, we are breaking God's law, and we're displeasing him. There are those who teach that. There are denominations that teach that. And they use as one of their scriptures, Exodus thirty-one sixteen, where God gave Israel the law throughout your generations. This will be an eternal covenant throughout your generation. You see, out your generation. That means that this law does not stop. This law does not stop. This law cannot be abrogated. This law cannot be set aside. Well, of course we know that. Any law that God gave and says forever and out throughout your generation is a law that always abides. We know that. <coughs> But you see, when you look at throughout your generations in the Old Testament, it appears about 36 different times. And it applies to various aspects of various laws. For instance, keep the Passover throughout your generations as an eternal remembrance of the covenant. Keep the Passover. So if we're going to break the law by not going to church on Saturday, should we also keep the Old Testament Passover? Well, no, of course not. Well, you see, we can't begin to differentiate. This is a law that is given by God in the commandments to keep forever. So, have we thrown the law out? But what did we say? What does the Bible say? The law has not been set aside. It has not been abrogated. It has not been disqualified or whatever. It has been fulfilled. Colossians 2.17. This law, as every law, is still viable and functional and applicable and real and experiential in my life today as it ever has been when God gave it. How? In Christ, I and us together are keeping this law of relationship forever. Remember, the law of God was given as a relational activity, a relational issue for us to bring us in and cause us to allow a greater joy in knowing him and experiencing him. This is the law of God. This is what the law of God still today. This is the purpose of the law of God today. So now we, if we're in Christ... We are keeping the Passover. We are keeping the law of Sabbath. We are keeping the law that had to do with circumcision. We are keeping the law as it had to do with any of these issues. As we are walking in obedience and fellowship with Christ, that law is being kept by us in Christ. Amen? So we're not under obligation to have a particular day. Paul talks about that. Don't let anybody put you on the obligation as to days and so on. Don't do that. This law, we're living in the seventh of God. Adam and Eve were created at the end of the sixth day to live in the spiritual seventh of God's rest. And they forfeited that by sin. God is calling his people back to live in the rest, the completed work of his creative activity and purpose in Christ forever. We're Sabbath-keeping people. We're Sabbath-keeping people. What about Sunday? Is that an obligation for us? No, it's not an obligation. It's an opportunity of fellowship and joy. Amen? Of fellowship and joy. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery, to idolatry. Don't do it. Let me just finish with this last episode, and I'll do it quickly. Verse 9 to 13. 
Jesus went out from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they said to him, Is it lawful? We see, on the Sabbath. Is it lawful? So they might accuse him. And he said, Which one of you has a sheep, falls into a pit on Sabbath, and will not take it out and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. So the Pharisees wanted a demonstration and a proof. And how did Jesus do it? He said, let me show you. This is what the Sabbath will do, and this is what the law does. Here's God's purpose. Stretch out your hand. And it was healed. What is God's purpose in all of this? What? Our healing. Our forgiveness. Our restoration. That's how we are to see the law and all the commandments, Old and New Testament. Understanding which ones do actually apply and which ones do not. We have to use God's wisdom in this. But not to chuck them out and not to think, I can do what I want to do. Isn't God good by giving us his word? Amen. Amen.